Good evening and welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sandsbury. Good evening, Simon. Well, we've made it. 100 shows. I know. Happy Halloween. Can you... Happy Halloween indeed. Oh, I don't, oh I'm not happy about Halloween. It all feel, I've no, never been a fan. It all feels a bit invented and American to me and all, all overly pumpkin reliant. I'm not sure I approve. Pumpkin reliant? Is that like a model of a three-wheeled car? That, that's, a, that's a Robin reliant. Okay. Absolutely. Um, but yes, 100 shows. Excellent. Who thought we could get this far? Well, we've, we've, yeah, we've, we've had our highs and lows along the way and um no well we continue to to go strong and as it is uh as it is all hallows eve what could be scarier indeed so um i don't know if you've missed it um but i don't know where you've been hiding if you've missed it but it's cop 26 um which we want to talk about in glasgow in yes and i'm not going to try and do a glaswegian accent even though i watched a fair bit of taggart as a kid I don't think that would be culturally appropriate. So it's the 26th go at COP. Mm-hmm. I'm still not even sure what COP stands for. We probably should research that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Bombing. Yeah. Well, um, luckily, that's one of the questions that we're going to be asking our guests. Um, but to um, but to set... Um, yeah, so um, should we welcome our guests in and, and, um, and crack straight on with finding out what, what it, COP stands it, for in not just the acronym, but also what it means yeah and we'll 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 see what Greta's got to say about things we do she's she's always got something to say hasn't she let's welcome and, our and just to clarify we haven't got Greta on the show no we, no. we borrowed a clip from someone else um to um to demonstrate her thoughts on the subject oh we're summons with the um with the clock so uh good evening Sue good evening James hello hello Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, no. We, yeah, what, 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 what started as a, a as an animated discussion between two brother-in-laws on Brexit, which we've, we've referenced before, which was the first episode that we never uh, we never broadcast. That lives in the archives. We can't believe that uh, over two years on, we're still going strong. But thank you for giving up your, uh, um, your, your Halloween evening um, to discuss... COP26 and all things climate change with us. Could I just ask you first of all to introduce yourselves, what your experience and interest is in the subject, um, the group you represent, and what kind of things they're involved in around Portsmouth. And Sue, can I ask you to introduce yourself first? Okay. Yes, I've I've been involved with campaigning on climate for a while, and I'm currently quite active in uh, both the Hampshire Climate Group and the Haven't One. But as of this moment, um, I'm busy with the COP26 Portsmouth Climate Coalition um, because we're planning lots of events. Well, two events, two events really. We've got a um, a climate strike on Thursday and a rally and march for the climate on Saturday. So it's a short-lived group, but it's uh, one that was worth mentioning, obviously. Definitely, and and the kind of groups that are coming together in that coalition. So, where where are they coming from? Well, 
Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth. I represent, actually, I forgot to say, um, Global Justice Portsmouth um, and the Haven't Climate Groups involved and um, Stand Up to Racism, various political parties. It's a really quite a wide coalition because um, you name it, they're concerned about the climate. You know, everyone from you know, lots of environmental groups, political groups, church groups, just ordinary people who aren't involved with any other groups uh, are still really anxious to do something at the moment. Marvellous. So thank you, Sue. So James, could you introduce yourself? Um, okay, yep. Uh, I'm the coordinator uh, of the local Greenpeace Portsmouth group. Um, I've been doing that for almost six years. Been volunteering with Greenpeace generally for about eight years, uh, and um, we campaign on essentially our main MO is that we campaign uh, on national issues at a kind of local level, and it can also be international issues as well, obviously of climate change and, and other things. And that's that's our main focus is climate change mitigation, uh, but um, we also focus on kind of protecting the more you know, the, the minutia of protecting global and local ecosystems as part of that um but yeah but um yeah like i said i've I've, I've worked with sue before and we're involved with the um cop coalition and and helping out with the the march um as well it's marvelous a a very long proud tradition of greenpeace i i can't remember i would uh, i struggle to hazard a guess how long the organization's been going but 50 years this year actually is it It, yeah 50 years yeah 1971 they sailed out to a nuclear testing site I, I I knew I remembered it as a small boy, so it's uh, that's, yeah. that's prob- 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 it was, probably dates me as much as anything. Yeah, Greenpeace was the name of the ship that they sailed out on, so they weren't actually an organisation at that point, obviously, but they called the ship Greenpeace, and then that became their name as a as an environmental kind of protest group, action group. Marvellous, thank you, Sue and James. Simon. Okay, so. Um, Shall we play a, a, a little bit of um, a little bit of uh, clip that we've, we've we've borrowed from elsewhere? That will. Um, so this is what um, Greta had to say at the Youth for Climate meeting, which was on the twenty eighth of, of September. This is not about some expensive, politically correct green act of bunny hugging or blah blah blah. Build back better. Blah blah blah. Green economy. Blah blah blah. Net zero by 2050. Blah blah blah. Blah blah blah. Net zero. Blah blah blah. Climate neutral. Blah blah blah. This is all we hear from our so-called leaders. Words. Words that sound great but so far has led to no action. Our hopes and dreams drown in their empty words and promises. Um, So, yes, um, there was Greta in characteristic style calling out, um, calling out the, 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 uh, as she sees it, the the dearth of action um, and some uncomfortable moments for Alok Sharma watching watching that as in responding to that um from a live from the live stream i guess from the from the meeting um so that kind of sets a bit of a a, a bit of the background here um and talking about cop um cop 26 um so I'll, I'll put up a graphic in a second to talk about it what the um what the four stated goals are of of um of cop 26 
Um, but to help us understand it and make sure we're all up to date and maybe someone can actually tell us what COP stands for, because I'm, I'm sure that comes out, um, is um, so um, first to Sue. Um, so what is COP? Why is it 26? How did it come about? And, you know, who, who, what sort of people go? Okay. Um, COP stands for the Conference of the Parties, which is not very helpful, I guess. Um, and it's the United Nations Conference. It's set up by the United Nations Framework on Climate Change. And uh, international meetings to deal with climate issues were set up, obviously, 26 years ago. And they had come, um, they kind of, developed out of the Earth Summit. The question about who goes is that it's supposed to be a conference of equals. And if you think about it, most of the big conferences where decisions are made about the world economy are very limited to rich countries, you know, the G20, the G7, but the COP26 is open to every single country. So 196 countries should be represented. We have about 125 world leaders coming to it. Um, so who goes? Well, as I say, world leaders, uh, politicians, climate scientists, negotiating teams from different countries and um, campaigners from around the world. So loads of people representing different groups will be there and the COP 26 coalition that I mentioned is going to be around in force. Um, the ones who won't be coming, and there are some high profile absentees like Putin and President Xi of uh, China, which is a shame, but they're sending delegations, so those countries will be represented. Um, what worries us more is that some of the poorest countries won't be represented. Um, and that's something that's concerning the COP26 coalition a lot, because some of them weren't able to get visas, which is ridiculous. Um, some of them were prevented by COVID regulations, and some of them have been prevented because there isn't enough accommodation. So countries like Haiti, which, as you know, have been hit by hurricanes and earthquakes and all sorts of natural disasters, are not going to be represented at COP26. So I think that's a, a real failing from the beginning. And it's one of the reasons why as campaigners, we need to make the voices of those smaller nations amplified really. Yeah, indeed, because wouldn't, wouldn't those sorts of nations be the ones that are actually going to feel the effects much sooner than... Um, than, than... Absolutely, yes, that's the same. It's some of the some of the really poorest nations, like the small island nations in the Pacific, have not been able to go. Um, so I think all the rich countries will be well represented, even if the leaders are not there. But it's the poorer countries that are not represented. Well, that's a um, well, that's a shame. So even if they're not in the room, are there are there concerns still being addressed either way? Are they do they still get a chance to have a voice or? Is it is kind of their only chance to make a case by being there by sending because some well, some countries they, seem to be sending. They sorry, are in, go on. Sorry, they are in groups. Yeah. Like there's a group of small island states which have been very influential at previous COPs, um, so they will be represented by that block, but their specific concerns might be overlooked. I, I see. Thank you. 
And James, did you have anything to add on that one? I mean, yeah, exactly that. It's the people that are going to be affected most, um, who are a bit who have contributed the least, uh, who are often being shut out of it. And like you say, it's the island groups, um, which you know some of these islands are are looking like they could be swept away because of climate change. Um, yeah, we really need to represent represent their voices because um, you know they're not being heard. And, and like Sue said, a lot of it's to do with uh, you know um, these poor countries. They don't have the vaccines in place, for example, don't have the um, ability to come because of COVID. And uh, that is that is a real failing. And there wasn't an argument that perhaps it shouldn't go ahead at all until they iron out those issues. But um, obviously, it's a very important conference. So um, it had to go ahead. But uh, another person who's not going to be there is, is Putin, apparently, and Bolsonaro. Um, and, and they're leaders of countries that have significant carbon emissions. Mm. So it's quite interesting, along with obviously, it's very disappointing that she won't be there from, you know, the Chinese president. Um, so uh yeah yeah there are a few issues with this this uh this year but um yeah because china and now the and yeah. now the world's largest um producer of um co2 aren't they they're the, well, the largest emitter of, of co2 they yes. they overtook the the united states in what, 20 um 2018 or something so yes that's that's right that's that's correct yeah um, it's called uh, yeah Conference of Parties 26 because there's been 26 bah. of them. So 1995 was the first one, COP one, and then here we are. Uh, and last year's this year, this one was meant to happen last year, obviously because of COVID, it didn't. So it's been moved to this one. And I guess that's an interesting segue into the next question, James. Obviously, you know, we heard Greta there, blah blah blah, nothing's happened. You know, it's all just empty words and broken promises so i guess we've had 25 previous rounds and i i think paris often gets a mention so in the previous 25 conferences you know are, are there any achievements to 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 point to and and is there perhaps more room for optimism than than perhaps greta's uh, feeling at the moment um is that to me um, that's to you i think what greta was saying wasn't so much that uh you know there's not a hope for optimism i think she's just saying we're fed up there's a lot of talk that comes out of the rich nations that are contributing the most um and not much action and i think that's what she was saying she was having a go at the kind of just the endless rhetoric without anything to back it up and i would say that very little has been accomplished um uh, yes of course cop 21 in paris 2015 was a huge step forward but it wasn't legally binding unfortunately and the whole idea of this one is they were told that in five years' time, come back with actual plans of how you're going to uh, implement the the targets and and, and set in in the Paris Agreement. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I I agree that there hasn't there hasn't been much there hasn't been anything much to shout home home about. And actually, kind of the there's been more, since 2015 there's been the most emissions ever, you know, so we're not going in the right direction. And there isn't, there is, there is hope with this conference. Um, but uh, it's, yeah, it's hanging by a thread, the hope, I think, for a lot of people because of previous years, but we'll have to see, obviously. Do you share that pessimism, Sue, that, that, that ultimately 25 previous attempts have, have not yielded progress? 
Well, they haven't, they haven't yielded no progress. As James said, we did have, we had a, a Kyoto Agreement in 92 when mm. lots of countries did commit to cutting their greenhouse gas emissions. And the Paris Agreement in 2016 was actually very important um, because there were there's a universal commitment, really, apart from Trump, um, to cutting emissions seriously. But they also built into Paris Agreement, the Paris Agreement, a kind of ratchet mechanism, which meant that countries had to up their offers of greenhouse gas promises every year, and that they were going to be reviewed every five years. So really, Glasgow is about saying, okay, guys, you agreed this five, you know, six years ago now, what have you actually achieved? How can you make this really happen? And uh, so we're building on that Paris foundation. But as James says, emissions have been rising rather than falling, which is terrifying. So we have a lot to worry about. Hmm. Would it be fair to say that emissions have been sort of rising universally across the world or... You know, are, are, are some countries doing better than others? Well, definitely some countries are doing better than others. Um, there are some, some that are really terrible. Australia, Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, and when you look at it per capita, places like Austra Australia in mm. particular is the worst, not China. And obviously they've got so much more, so many more people. Um, yeah, yeah. I think when I looked at, the, at all. no, I think when I looked this morning in terms of, um, I think it was on the politics show this morning that that whilst China is is still, I think accounts for something like twenty seven percent of the the CO two emissions, um, they still have a the USA still has a larger per capita output than they do, mm -hmm. so it is it is a. It is a mixed bag. So, James, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I was just going to say exactly that point. Um, it, it, the US kind of leads the way in per person. It's just so happened that China's got a huge population. That's why they, they, they're mm. the highest on emissions. But actually, per person, uh, you know, on average, their their emissions are way down compared to some of the Western Westernized countries. Um, mm. So that that needs to be taken into account. Really, is that uh, it's the way that people in the global north are living uh, mm. rather than, um, you know, uh, to all blame it on China, essentially. And, and actually, if you see if China were to cut their emissions, you're talking about 0.2, 0.3% .3 uh, on change on the temperature, um, 0.2 degrees, sorry, 0.2, 0.3 degrees difference. So they're not, they're not the kind of, everyone likes to point to them and say, well, we, what's the point they have to now? Well, actually, it is a global effort. They are the, the biggest contributor, but um, you know they're not. The, that's not the whole picture, essentially. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, so the next question is kind of t is talking about actually kind of the, the gap that kind of exists between the twenty fifty net zero target and and um, and and you know what's happening. And I think um, you know you've both kind of you've both said. The concerning thing at the moment is actually emissions are increasing rather than decreasing. So we're getting all we you know we're hearing about all of these targets, but what's really happening is that actually emissions are, are currently are um, are increasing, which is obviously the wrong direction. Um, so I just wanted to um, uh, share um, 
in in the stream there's a there's a video from the UN uh, the UN environmental uh, sorry I'm um, sorry UN emissions gap program that was I don't know why that was so difficult to say so I'm just going to um, share that quick video um, and at the um, I'll post that later on into the live stream the, the link to that but it I, th I think it kind of tells that story quite um, quite well you know to me that's quite a horrifying um, video it talks about um, you know, being on course to actually a, a 2.7 percent, um, sorry, 2.2.7 degree um, increase in temperatures, um, and even um, even what we're on, you know, that being actually the result of what the what existing targets are, um, the countries aren't meeting them. Um, that um, you know, some are using kind of different ways to exclude different things from their calculations, so not everything is is kind of being reported, and the sorts of impacts that that's going to have of increasing of severe um, you know, severe, um, drastic weather um, systems um, and the concerns that that is, and that's that's in comparison to looking at the one, the one point five degree target. Um, you know that you, you you mentioned that was originally kind of um, uh, talked about. So I guess that kind of leads into the to our next question was you know if if net zero by twenty fifty is the is kind of the overarching target that um, that countries seem to be reaching for some a bit more, some a bit you know some a bit earlier, some a bit later. Um, is that is that going to be too late? Uh, and this is to um, and this is to Sue first, if that's all right. So you know, is is, is that going to be too late? And how long before we're going to start seeing if we're still so increasing? Most, how long before we start seeing that yeah. effect? Effect. Uh, Twenty fifty most emphatically is too late. We need to act much much faster than that. And and one of the problems with saying twenty fifty is that you can just push the problem aside and think, you know, the next government will deal with that. We don't have to worry because it's a long way in the future. So um, most climate campaigners will be arguing for a much faster target than that. And we're also not very happy about saying, you know, net zero by 2050 for two reasons. One is we need to be much more focused on this 1.5 target because that's a real definite target, whereas net zero can cover a great deal of fudging and offsetting and governments pretending that they're going to have wonderful technology in the future that doesn't actually exist. So it's much more important to keep the 1.5 target in front of people's minds. Um, and as for when we'll see a difference, we won't see a difference, I'm afraid, because we can't go back on this 1.2 um, rise that we already have. It's extremely unlikely that we could reverse the rise in temperature that we've already had. It's pretty unlikely that we'll hold it to 1.5. And 1.5 has been chosen, not because it's desirable, but because uh, it's probably achievable, but only with a big effort. So the initial um, push is is going to have to be enormous to achieve that. And and what do you th what do you think stopping us from getting there quicker? I mean, you you, you said that twenty fifty is is you know too late. It needs to be much sooner. What's what's the what's the barrier? Um, there are a whole load mm -hmm. of barriers. One is the attitude of individual governments who are listening far more to the fossil fuel companies 
and the meat production companies and the loggers and so on than they are to their people who may be really distressed and you know having a terrible time because of climate change um, there are governments like our own that are arguing about the cost um, you know, there are lots of people uh, in the Tory backbenches particularly who are saying we can't afford to uh, invest in green technology and so on which is nonsense because if we do invest in it now it will save a great deal of money in the future and Lord Stern was saying that 10 years ago. Um, a third reason is, as I already said, there's a lot of reliance on fake solutions. Uh, net zero is of very meaningless term because, you know, organisations say they're going to get to net zero, but it's because they are buying carbon offsets, which are fairly debatable. Um, and they're talking about um, carbon markets, which again are very controversial and uh, may be seriously uh, to the detriment of poorer nations. Um, and, and finally, I think that one of the reasons why we may have difficulty at COP26 is the approach of the British government. I think we've upset a lot of countries, especially the poorer ones, this year with the aid cuts, with our failure to um, keep our promises on climate finance, with a hashed up uh, policy on supplying vaccines, and apparently very little effort at diplomacy to try and win world leaders around to uh, you know, get them on board. Apparently before the Paris climate talks, uh, Macron was whizzing around the world talking to as many people as possible and persuading them to take it seriously and the British ministers just haven't been doing that. So that's a few reasons yeah. why I'm pessimistic. There, there, there's, there's quite a bit there to, um, yeah, so thank, thank you, there's quite a lot there. James, did you have anything more to add on that one than, than the, you know, that quite extensive list that Sue's given us? Um, uh well, I mean, all I would say is that the net zero thing came about from the IPCC report. Um, and uh, origin what they were saying, and this is in the October 2018 summary, uh, they were saying that uh, by 2030, we've got to be down on um, 2010 levels by by uh, 45% uh, or 40%, I think. Um, on global emissions by 2030 to, to try and hit 1.5, which like I agree with Sue, I think a lot of scientists and the general understanding in the community now is that 1.5 probably isn't going to be reachable. Um, but it's about staying in that ballpark. You know, it's not 1.5 or any, you know, 1.5 or, or it's over. It's we need to reduce emissions really quickly. Um, and, and, and like Sue's alluded to there, you know, what, uh, what we need is real policy change. Um, and what's being the, the new denial is the new greenwash is, is that we can just, we can just carbon, we can just uh, carbon offset. We can just, um, you know, do this offsetting. We can just capture carbon, the mystical carbon capture that's going to happen in the future. And we can just carry on as normal. And, 
and as Sue said, that one of the things that's stopping is lobbying. And this has been going on for 30 years. And that's why we're really at a really crisis station now, because for 30 years, the fossil fuel industry has been putting all of its energy into blocking climate change action. And that has not stopped. They are still to this day um, and using uh, corporate media in the same way to promote that, that they can carry on as usual. And all they have to do is uh, replace the carbon with this offsetting, which is, uh, you know, completely debatable and, and rely on unproven technology in, in carbon capture. And they can just carry on till whenever, you know, they can keep digging up fossil fuels. And that's the thing, that, that's the lie now that they're trying to sell. To sell. That, you know, it's their lobbying they're, um, against action in different countries. Um, what they tend to do as well is they sue people through that thing called the Energy Charter Treaty in Europe and across the world. They mm. sue uh, countries who try to block their, you know, try to move away to greener solutions to renewable energy, which is what we need to do. And also there's been a, a campaign from corporate media that often has some, you know, background ties to, the, the, to that world that have just spread doubt, not reported it correctly. Um, you know, uh, you've got all these different think tank groups and PR companies, the same PR companies that worked with, with trying to play down the effects of cigarettes and cancer. They're literally the same company and sometimes the same people that have been trying for the last 30 years causing enough doubt on climate change that it's left us at this point. And, and, and that's still going on. It's still going on. They, they, they can't deny the science anymore because we're now past that. But what they can do is say, oh, no, we don't need to change our systems. We can still carry on with growth. We can still, uh, you know, we can we can free market our way out of this and and carbon capture and offsetting will solve everything. And it's it's dangerous and it, it's, it's a lie. OK, thank you. So um, Sue just wanted to um, come in quickly and before we move on to the next point, if that's right. Yep. Yeah, I, I wrote about something extra before James said that because I wanted to say a bit more about the the fact that fossil fuel companies in particular have a terrible history of casting doubt on climate science, undermining climate scientists. And I think apart from what James has just said, their other tack is to try and blame the individual. It's all about you must stop eating meat and you must not fly and you must do this, that and the other. And, and trying to take the blame away from themselves. And actually it's governments and the really big corporations who need challenging and who are responsible for the mess that we are in. Yes, 100%. Okay. So to, to that end, we, do, we talk about governments and uh, I think we would all welcome the fact that um, the US has now recommitted to um, the Paris Climate Accord. Um, and obviously, previously, Trump was very parochial and, and basically, you know, said, well, I, I don't really care about the globe. I'm going to do what's best for the US. So I guess my question is, you know, what are the hopes for, you know, we touched on them earlier in the podcast. We've got China, who's the largest CO2 admitter and is still increasing. You've got Australia, who you've mentioned, you know, Brazil, um, Russia, you know, uh, how how can we get those those countries to to come on board because you know they they are very significant polluters and a moment at a moment they appear to be taking almost a trumpian line which is either it's not a problem or it's somebody else's problem we're not going to going to commit 
So, James, love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously if China, uh, the US and India, um, but I, I, I feel for India in a way because obviously for years they were an underdeveloped nature mainly because of the historical reasons of, of art and imperialism and such. And now when they've started to get an economy where they're, you know, um, a developed economy, we're telling them, no, you can't, you know. Um, and, and obviously, if all those countries of Russia, US, if they had a good net, net zero policy in place and were following it, it would be half the battle won. There's no denying about that. But that's not that's not the whole story. Europe is also a major polluter, massive polluter. So, you know, uh, it's not just about those guys. It's uh, And I feel like if we are going to talk to other countries and start putting the pressure on other um, emitters, we have to get our ducks in a row. We have to sort out ourselves um, and then we can then, uh, you know, have a global pressure to make sure that everyone is doing their bit. Um, but certainly, yeah, no, of course, you know, they are part of the picture. They're, they're the big part of the picture. Um, but we have to do what we have to do in our country and, and, and across Europe as well. But would it not be fair to say, though, James, that, you know, the, the majority of the world's leaders are attending this conference, which for me, you know, you could, we, we could argue that it's virtue signalling. But for me, the fact that, you know, Bolsonaro, um, President Zhang in China and Putin have basically said it's not worth my time. It, it, isn't, that, isn't that really signposting that, that those major polluters don't take this issue seriously or they're in the Trump camp of, well, I, I don't care about the planet. I'm going to look after my own. It is, it is a worry. Um, and China have been known to like, they know what's coming. They're, they've been trying to buy up land in, in Africa to then, you know, grow their crops because they know some of the potential things that could happen if we don't bring it in. So they, you know, it is, it is, it is a worry. But, um, you know, we, we have to we have to, before we can start lecturing other people, we have to sort out, you know, and, and also it's, the whole China thing, it's not telling the whole story. You know, a lot of the fossil fuel projects that are happening are funded from London, funded from the city of London and the banks, the, the huge banks in, in, in the city of London and across uh, Europe and obviously in the US as well. They are, they are, they are responsible for so much emissions through their funding uh, of the projects themselves so it's it's not just the story of you know which countries it's actually the corporations and the uh, the banks as well that need to be curtailed and that can only be done from from the uk because a lot of these banks are uk based um you know you know like barclays and others jp morgan stuff like that you know they they we have to curtail them as well so it's not so obviously yes we can we need to get china on board um, but there's not much that we can do as campaigners from that side of things. We just have to make sure that we're sorting ourselves out because it's not just about our small emissions in our country. It's about what we're doing abroad. And a lot of the stuff we're doing abroad is adding massively to the problem. So. Mm. Thank you, James. Sue. Thank you. I'm trying to Anything to add to that. that. Um, I suppose it's extremely hard to influence countries like Russia, China, Brazil, but I guess we can support the um, the campaigning groups in those countries. Um, difficult in China, but Australia's got a terrible record, and apparently the um, the campaigners there have really pushed Scott Morrison not only to attend COP26, 
but to make a few promises, nothing like good enough, but you know, they're pushing him in the right direction. So I think it's probably worth making a plug for campaigning, and in, especially the, the international ones like Greenpeace, I suppose, who uh, are working everywhere. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point, actually. That's one thing, you know, if we do become perfect within our own environments, you know, the best thing we can do is support those that are actively, you know, fighting the good fight in those countries. And I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So, um, Perfect. so this one, um, first to, to Sue, if that's okay. Um, so the sorts of changes that I, that I guess that we're talking about are quite, you know, quite widespread, quite, you know, quite systemic about how our economy works, how, our, you know, talks about cha massive changes to our standards of living. Are there historical precedents um, where um, of countries needing to make those sorts of wholesale changes to their, you know, to their manufacturing base, to their standard of living, to their to their economies? Because we've we've surely, as a as a species, faced similar sorts of challenges before. What what the what are the similar precedents to the sort of seed change that needs to take place? I really struggled with this question because I actually can't think of a good example of a country that has really changed. I mean, okay, obviously there have been revolutions in the mm -hmm. past and things have been different, but not to decarbonize mm. your society, um, take away lots of you know, um, power from big corporations and so on. This is pretty unprecedented, I guess. Uh, there are some good examples of countries that have uh, even gone to, you know, um, carbon positive, like Bhutan and Costa Rica, but they're not the rich countries, not the ones with the power. Mm -hmm. So um, mm. I couldn't really think. I mean, there, there has been some progress. I mean, over the last few years, the um, the growth in renewable energy and the reduced cost of renewable energy is really impressive. So there have been changes even in Britain, of course. Um, and also uh, there's a big change, I think, in people's understanding of climate um, and the popular demand for action. Mm -hmm. But they don't add up to a whole change of policy yet. So it kind of... Um, so, so yeah, add no, that, that, that's all right. I mean, I, I didn't want to try and put words in your mouth i mean i i had a thought but james did you have something to add on that one but um um i, I mean i think sue makes a good point that this is on i don't think that humans have ever faced this sort of challenge before um you know the only thing i can think of is we have to have a sort of world war ii style effort mm. so in world war ii everything changed pretty much everything was hands to the pump you know it was it was everything was about that huge event uh, and that did change manufacturing, standards of living, even before and after. And I think this is the same sort of thing. I mean, this, the fallout of this, if it goes wrong, is going to be a lot more than, uh, you know, I can't remember what the figure, I think it was 20 million people died in World War II. This is, we're talking about maybe hundreds of millions of people, maybe in billions. So this is a massive event, and I think that needs to be said. And we've never faced anything like this. Um, I, think, I think COVID, for example, uh, has shown that... You know, you can, although not on the same scale, there's been massive change in people's lives. You know, we've all had to adapt and and stay in and, and you know, and, 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 and the government has, uh, you know, 
ponied up money to people to to stay safe in their homes and stuff like that. So there is, you know, there is precedent for massive changes when there's a huge crisis. It just needs the political will. It just needs the right people in power to make the right decisions and invest. And, yeah. I think that's a, a that's a interesting comparison because um I mean some domestic um politicians make much hay out of using the World War Two comparisons um for you know the you know for you know knuckling down and, and getting on with things and facing insurmountable odds etc um and you know maybe you know maybe maybe we do need to go to war against climate change and face it in a similar sort of way is that because it, it kind of seems that when you when you look yeah. at um when you look at what happened to um you know to manufacturing um to the way people were living their lives to the interruptions to freedoms to the interruptions to a market economy that took place in the uk and indeed in the us um in the second world war um they weren't universally accepted they were actually quite resisted um that you know certainly in the in the you know us quite heavily and they were quite heavily lobbied against um in the uk by by certain parties so it's it might be a cheap comparison, but from a perspective of if that's the level of commitment we need to have to it, then then maybe that's the sort of language we need to be having. We, you know, we, you know, we need to look at it in that sort of way that it's a that it's a yeah. foe that we're all facing together. Admittedly, one that you know the world has caused for itself, but maybe that's that's yeah. I mean, all I'd say is that you know, from my kind of little I know about human psychology, I know that we all come together when we have a common foe. And and although climate change, you know, isn't a, a, another country attacking us or another country trying to take over the world, whatever it is, it is a way of grouping everyone together, something to defeat. And what we're really defeating is, uh, you know, climate breakdown, you know, a, a, a complete change to our civilization like we've, we've never seen. Um, that's not me talking, that's what some of the predictions are coming out of from the scientific community from from you know ipcc scientists even on the record and sometimes off the record so this is you know this is like something we've never faced and i think it probably might help to see um i know it's a bit controversial but to see it as an enemy that we've got to all band uh, uh, you know band together and defeat uh because you know the effects of it are, are, are just the same really in terms of the, what could happen to our lives and our children and our grandchildren's lives. Okay, thank you. So, if, if we look at uh, so this week there was a there was a budget announcement um, from um, my least favourite chancellor, Rishi Sunak. Um, what what was in the budget that that encouraged you or discouraged you from a green perspective? I'll ask that first to James. Uh, very little. I was very disappointed, personally. Um, you know, Rishi spoke more about cider than he did about the impending doom of the climate emergency. Uh, you know, I, what was there? I think it was like £5,000 for heat pumps, covering a tiny percentage of the UK. And like, you know, most heat pumps are £6,000 up. You know, that's not going to be a massive incentive. We're, we're one of the worst in in the in the Europe for heat pump sales as it is so it's a very piecemeal poor effort I felt on the budget you know we need huge investment huge investment um, and it's just bonkers it's just bonkers the way 
It's very typical of this government. You know, they like to wax lyrical about climate change when the mic's on them. Oh, what about climate change, Boris? They, you know, oh, yes, they say all the right things. But in any other area, it's like it doesn't exist. You know, it's it's just mad. It's just mad. Sue, and, and any more yeah, I, I encouragement was, from yourself? I was actually you... shocked by the budget because I just couldn't believe that a few days before COP26, and after so much, con so many conversations about building a better, greener society, that the Chancellor mentioned neither and put no money into either. I thought it was unbelievable, given the, as James said, given the situation. Um, and you didn't, James didn't mention the fact that also the um, there was a lot of money, twenty-one billion for road building. There was cuts to the passenger yeah, fuel duty yeah. on on internal flights. Those are unbelievable policies in the climate context. I, I yeah. thought it was shocking. Yeah. If I can just jump in there, that's that's the Greenpeace um, have been banging on about the twenty-five billion, the biggest road building programs to ever to exist in the last i think like 100 years in the midst of a climate emergency when we're hosting cop you know i mean it's just in incredible and like you say yeah i completely forgot about the um encouraging flying <laughs> you know it's, it's mad it's mad yeah no I, I i think it would be fair to say that that in terms of um my eyebrows when the 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 fuel duty the duty on internal flights came up i i in terms of a, a policy, I'm not sure I was expecting or anybody else was. Um, that that one, that one was um, was was a bit of a breathtaker. So, in the interest of time, Simon. Okay. So, um, so the, and this one is um, is first to Sue. If that's okay. So, do protests like we've seen recently um, insulate Britain? Are they helping the cause, or is there a risk that they're disenfranchising the public? I, I have very little but admiration for the people who are brave enough to try and stop traffic. And I think that groups like Extinction Rebellion have done a fantastic job in getting um, you know, climate issues out before the public. Um, and we've already mentioned sort of insulation. I mean, it seems like a very focused thing. But the fact that we have no money for houses that are leaking heat the whole time, that, that the government's policy for retrofitting houses was really badly organised and short-lived is actually pretty disgraceful. And another thing I would I really feel very strongly about is why the heck are they still building new houses that aren't to high eco-standards that are, you know, well insulated. It's just disgraceful that that doesn't happen. So hopefully the protesters have got those issues debated. I can do. I do understand that drivers will get very frustrated, but it's going to be a lot more frustrating if we let climate change go ahead. Okay, James, you want to come in? Yeah, I mean, you know, to answer the question, I, I believe I believe they help ultimately. They 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 push the government. You know, however you don't like it, they push them and put pressure to make the changes. If the public don't like it or are disenfranchised, disenfranchised, uh, I can't say a word, by it, then they basically they need to go home. They need to Google what happens if we don't drastically reduce our emissions by 2030. 
I need to think of their, you know, their children, their nieces, their nephews, their children's children. You know, IB aren't there to be liked, but they, but they are to get people thinking um, about this issue. You know, and and and, and they're, they're a, a consequence of a media, on the whole, not the entire media, but most of the media that has completely let us down as 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 a society by not adequately reporting on what we are facing. Um, you know. It, that's been the for me the biggest thing about why people are so upset because they just don't they don't get why these people are stopping them going to work so it's up to concerned citizens like the very brave people who are risking financial and physical harm in some cases to raise the alarm um so i know it's not a popular opinion uh but yeah we we stand behind them um and you know yeah, yeah. it's an interesting one so did uh, the extent the um protesters on the m25 there was a facebook post by the news in the week um about the you know the the, the blocking of traffic and i i took the time to go through the comments and there were 278 so it did take me a little while there were 12 people who were supportive of what they were doing and and 266 who weren't and probably about half of those were happily advocating violence against the protesters so yeah. I, I do i do wonder whether those pro you know if i look back to those greenpeace days you know when when people were driving ribs in front of whaling boats i think everybody could see that the whalers were the bad guys and the greenpeace were the good guys in a gender inclusive way I, I wonder whether i wonder whether those protesters are seen as the good guys because the court of public opinion seems to to take against what's um what site what what comment section was that on that's the that's the portsmouth, portsmouth news. yeah but yeah um yeah. well i guess that's the people of portsmouth isn't it yeah, kind of, yeah. Or, or closely affiliated there I, yeah I, I yeah i mean i think a, a lot of it is a symptom of um there is frustration that the the public uh Aren't, although the concern has never been highest, and actually it's the number one issue, mm. climate change. But they're still, on the whole, like you're saying from the comments section, and the news is a, the kind of right-leaning paper in a sense. Its, it's owner is a out-and-out -out Tory. I think everyone who knows that paper knows that. Um, so, you know, it's difficult to gauge it exactly from the comments section of the news. But, um, yeah, in general, the public haven't connected to it in a way. And I blame... The media because we go to the media for our source of information so it hasn't been adequately pushed to people this is a terrible crisis and you need to care about it so when people do lie in front of the road and inconvenience them and I, I appreciate it's inconvenient and annoying you know of course they're going to have that reaction but if they if they tallied it up against what their and obviously they love and care for their children what their children and their, their grandchildren may be facing in future then they wouldn't they wouldn't be upset they'd be sitting out there with them but they, a lot of people don't get it. They don't connect to it in the right way. And I think it's just a symptom of that. And I think it's a way of bringing it to their faces and saying, look, you may be annoyed about this, but you're not weighing it up against the bigger picture, which is that we are facing disaster across the globe if we do not keep permissions within the ballpark of 1.5 under 2 degrees. So, yeah. That's brilliant. Thank you, James. So, Simon, just to close us out do we want to just uh ask that that question about the uh the, what would be the um what would make the real difference okay yeah so 
Um, yep. So, um, Sue. So, if money, you know, we we've we've heard obviously that it, you know, it's not it's not easy. Um, but if money or, or political will were no object, what what one thing would you do to tackle the climate emergency? If you had a magic wand and, or you had, you know, universal power um, to... Yeah. Okay. Well, what we're calling for in this COP26 coalition is a just transition, which, which actually deals with two aims. One is that we decarbonize our economy and, and you know, build up renewable energy. But at the same time, we do that in a way that's just and equitable and does not exploit people. So people who their jobs are retrained and compensated, people who are affected by climate change around the world are protected. So we don't exploit people to get the rare metals that are needed for the green revolution. You know, so it's a, we have to keep justice at the very centre of what we're trying to do so going green but with justice in the middle of it okay that's my offer right thank you sue james yeah i mean that was, that was brilliant answer that we just need to we need to change the laws essentially a just transition away from fossil fuel to renewable energy is the answer um immediately stop all new fossil fuel projects i think the friends of the earth found out uh a few days ago that there's 40 projects in line 16 that's set to be approved by the government ban the banks from funding fossil fuel projects stop subsidizing through tax breaks to the tune of billions of the fossil fuel industry stop allowing investments in in, in uh, pension investments um and just put a massive investment into uh getting renew the renewable energy infrastructure in place you know if you have to tax the billionaires and close the loopholes and tax the the, the corporations for the common good it's worth it to avoid catastrophe um, and also to reduce reduce pollution as well uh, by making, you know, driving a car less feasible, bringing in a, a, a sustainable transport structure again with investment. Um, so I think, yeah, and I think, you know, to be honest, uh, the only way we're going to get that done is a change of government, um, a government that believes more in a more kind of Keynesian style of economics. Um, you know, where, where our society and our people come before the interests of big business uh, and and profiteers, you know, the business owners and the shareholders of these huge corporations. Um, you know, we have a chance for a healthier new world um, where we're self-sufficient for our energy because it would come from the sun, the wind, the sea, um, where we shop and travel locally, where we have less pollution. Um, you know, that we, we I can see that well. We just need to get there um, and we need a government that's willing to do that and has those ideas. Okay, thank you. Brilliant, James. Thank you very much. Sue, you, you opened saying that you, the, uh, the the COP coalition, of which uh, James' team is a part, has some events planned for, for this week. If people want to get involved, um, what would they, what, what can they do? Um, should have thought of that. There's a, there's a website called Campaign Exchange, and there's all the details about the events on there in an easy to find way but basically there's a, a climate strike on friday at 12 o'clock in Guildhall square and there's a rally and a march again at 12 o'clock on saturday in Guildhall square 
lots of speakers, a march up through the centre of Portsmouth, and then more speakers afterwards. So it's easy to remember. Hope to see you there. Midday Guildhall Square. So thank you, Sue. Thank you, James. You've been listening to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I've been Ian Tiny Morris. And our guests have been... James from Greenpeace. And Sue from all sorts of things. (laughs) Global Justice (laughs) Portsmouth. Thank you both. Um, And I've been Simon Sansbury. Um, please don't uh, don't forget, join us next week um, when we'll be um, looking at chamber danger as Portsmouth City Council resumes meeting in the, full, in the council chamber. We'll be looking at what's on the agenda and what's um, exciting and interesting for Portsmouth. But you've been listening to the Pompey Politics Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. If you want to make sure you get notifications about upcoming shows and get to know when we're live, we normally broadcast live 6.27pm on a Sunday evening, then follow us on Facebook at Pompey Politics Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pompey Politics One. Please, if you'd like to, feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can even ask Alexa to play the podcast for you. Alexa, play the latest episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. Getting Pompey Politics podcast from Amazon Music. Alexa, the latest episode. Stop. See, it's easy.